Hi, Pastor Anthony here. At Vintage Faith Church, we stand behind the Bible's claim to be the Word of God, and we believe that the Scriptures contain everything needed for life and godliness. The Scriptures testify to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We pray that this recording stirs your faith towards that end. This is in no way meant to be a substitute for the local church gathering, which we believe is critical to your growth as a Christian and your walk with Christ. We pray that you will find the sermon edifying and challenging. Thank you for listening. So this morning we're going to continue through Hebrews. Um, today, obviously, we just said we're looking at Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. If you remember last week, we looked at Christ's sacrifice once for all and how the law couldn't fulfill what was to be fulfilled. If you remember, our sermon series title is From Shadow to Substance. And the Old Testament law was the shadow. Christ is the substance. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 10 verse 1 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. Again, the law was the shadow. Christ is the substance. We went from the Old Testament law to Christ. Now what we're looking at today are sort of the implications of what we learned last week. And another refresher from last week, as we saw, <clears throat> was the Old Testament law was a shadow of better things to come. We also learned that all those animal sacrifices and offerings that were of the Old Testament could not take away the sins of Israel, or anyone for that matter. Hebrews 10 verse 4 says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So we know that that particular blood was not enough, was not good enough. But we also know that when Christ came, His blood certainly was good enough to cover our sins. And that's what this text today is actually going to get into. The author is saying what I just previously discussed, take confidence in this and walk with the full assurance of faith. Now, my Bible, which is ESV, actually has it headed as the full assurance of faith in this, this chapter. So let's get into it. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 21 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. Right at the beginning... Of this, the author is encouraging the readers to have confidence in their faith. Now, remember, and we've been saying this all throughout the series, this series in Hebrews, that the people he was writing to were Jewish Christians who were being persecuted, and they wanted to go back to Judaism. They wanted to revert back to the things that were mentioned last week. They want to go back to the safe ways, back to the animal sacrifices and offerings. And the author is saying to them, "Don't go back." Instead, take confidence in your faith and press forward. He's saying take confidence in the blood of Jesus Christ. And then he's saying take confidence that you can enter the holy place offered through the blood of Jesus. And he's also saying don't go back to Judaism. Take, just take confidence in what Christ has done. Now if you remember in the Old Testament... There was the holy place where everyone could enter. 
And then there was the most holy place where only the high priest can enter once a year to sacrifice an animal on behalf of the sins of Israel. Exodus tells us that the curtain, there was a curtain there to separate the holy place from the most holy place. Exodus 26 verse 33 says, And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. So obviously, again, the holy place is where everyone could enter. And the most holy place is where only the high priest could enter and could go once a year. And this was because access to God in the Old Testament was restricted. There was separation between God and man. And the curtain there is signifying the significance of the separation between men and God at that time. And the most holy place was actually a shadow of something so much better. And it's speaking to entering the presence of God. And the author is saying in this, he's saying here, he's saying, you know that most holy place that you couldn't enter? That only the high priest could enter? He's saying, guess what? You can now enter it because of what Christ did on the cross at Calvary. He's saying, take confidence in that. Don't go back to Judaism. Don't go back to the old religious practices that you were a part of. He's saying instead, look at what Christ did on the cross. When Christ died on that cross, he bridged that gap between us, man, and God. His blood bridged that gap. And the author is saying, take confidence in that. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. The righteous Jesus suffered for us, the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God, so that he might bridge that gap Take confidence in his blood, everyone. We get to enter the presence of God because of the precious blood of Jesus. What an amazing thing. Verse 20, verse 20 reiterates this. It says, By the new and living way that he opened for us, through the curtain that is through his flesh. The author here is making it known that the new and living way to God is no longer through a curtain. It's no longer through a mortal high priest. We don't have to go to a mortal high priest and have him sacrifice animals for us. We just saw that Christ's flesh tore that curtain wide open. Matthew 27, verse 51 says this, and this is immediately following Christ's death. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. At that moment when Jesus died, that veil, that curtain between us and man and God was torn in two. Christ's flesh had to be torn in order for the curtain to be torn. The curtain, the separation between man and God since the fall was torn when Christ died. 
all of us under the new covenant have access to God that the Old Testament saints never had. They had access to him, but nothing like we have today. And it was all because of Christ and his blood spilt. I know it sounds a bit repetitive what I've been saying, but what Christ did for us is so important. It's the greatest moment in redemptive history. Legionnaire Ministries says this, and there's doesn't have an author for it, about the, the rending of the veil, the lifting of the veil. It says, the rending of this veil means that access <coughs> excuse me, into the presence of God is no longer limited to the high priest. In the era after Christ's death, all believers may boldly come before the Almighty's throne. Again, we have access to God that the Old Testament saints never had. We live in an amazing time. Truly, the era after Christ's death, we get to come before the Almighty's throne anytime. And the author wants us to take confidence of this. Again, we don't have to enter through a mortal high priest. We don't need somebody sacrificing animals on our behalf anymore. We don't have to enter through a curtain. We can enter through Jesus Christ. Now, I know many of us, including myself, haven't probably thought of that all that often. We have access to God. We have the Bible. We go to Him in prayer. And we, we, we probably have never thought of us having this access the Old Testament saints never had. And I think we probably have taken it for granted. I know I have. But studying and reading his word has truly humbled me when it comes to this perspective that we live in this time where we can have access to him through Christ at any time, not once a year, not through a high priest, that a mortal high priest, a human high priest, we live in the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. And everyone in between these comings has that access to the Lord. And let's just remember that and take confidence in that. So moving on, verses 21 and 22 says, <clears throat> And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. The author starts off, verse 21, stating we have a great priest. And remember, we spent weeks about learning about Melchizedek, who was a high priest and a king. And then we, we learned that Christ came from the order of Melchizedek. And here the author is stating, as he has through the entire book of Hebrews, that Christ is our great ultimate priest over the house of God. And he says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. So you might be wondering, let us draw near to who or what? Let us draw near to God, right? He's saying, let us draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And I think the point the author is getting at here is the full assurance of our salvation. And I know many Christians, probably many of you in here, have struggled with your, the assurance of your faith and your salvation. And I know I have. <laughs> I've questioned it many times before. I've asked myself, am I truly saved? Am I truly a follower of Jesus? I've committed this sin or this sin or 
And I said, I can't possibly be saved. So let me ask you all, and I'm sure I don't even need to ask it, but I'm going to anyways. Have you struggled with the assurance of your salvation and your faith? Have you questioned your salvation? Again, I'm sure everybody in this room probably has at one point or another. But the Bible makes it so clear that we are to have and can have the full assurance of our faith. 1 John verse 5, or 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 says, I write these things to you, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So John is saying that we can know that we are saved. We can know that we have eternal life. And the author of Hebrews is telling the readers, you believers, you are to have full confidence in your faith and to have full assurance of your faith because of what Christ did. Again, his readers are being persecuted and they were certainly struggling with their faith because of the persecution they were enduring and it was ramping up and getting worse. The author is telling that, yes, you are being persecuted and hated for your faith, but stand confident and be assured of your faith and press forward because there's something so much better for you. 2 Peter verse 1 or 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 10 says, "Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail." Peter's also telling us to confirm our calling and election. He's also he also wants us to have confidence in our faith. He wants us to have full assurance of our faith and our salvation. And you might be wondering what qualities Peter's talking about here when he says, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. He's actually referring to the couple previous verses ahead of that. 2 Peter 1, verses 5, and 7, verse 5 through 7 says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So all these qualities Peter is telling us can help assure us of our salvation by practicing these things. And again, we're not going to be perfect at these things all the time. And we can certainly attain to do better at these, but these are some qualities that can assure us of our salvation. And John Piper actually says this about what we just read in Second Peter. So I don't think Peter is saying now, in this critical moment of serious failure, as in 2 Corinthians, seek to confirm your calling and election. He says, I don't think he means that. I think he means live your life in such a way that it ordinarily confirms your calling and your election. Take your daily stand on your justification by faith. Be confident, be confident he says, that on the basis of Christ alone, God counts you righteous. And then walk in happy, obedient faith and virtue, and knowledge, and self-control, and godliness, and brotherly affection, and love for the glory of Christ. He's saying, live your life in such a way that just ordinarily confirms your calling and election. He says, be confident that on the basis of Christ alone, not us, on Christ alone, that God counts you righteous. So be confident in that. And that's exactly what I think Peter is getting at here as well. To be confident in your faith. 
And the point of me bringing this up is because, as I said earlier, we sometimes struggle with the assurance of our faith. But the Bible, again, is clear. The Bible, again, is clear that this isn't the way we should live our lives. We aren't to be questioning if we're saved all the time. Now, are we called to self-examine our faith? Absolutely, but that's, I'm not going to get into that today. But, uh, but that's different than having an assurance of faith. So, folks, I'm telling you, here we are almost 2,000 years later to take confidence in what Christ did on the cross. Take confidence in that. And draw near to God with the full assurance of faith. Don't question your salvation. Be confident in that. Another thing, too, is it's a, that's a great way to make disciples. And I know I've said this since I've been up here preaching before. It's a great way to make disciples and to witness to others is going out and being confident in our faith and being assured that we are saved and that we are His. Now, the second half of verse 22 says, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, <coughs> excuse me, and our bodies washed with pure water. So we're to draw near to God with the full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. It's more old covenant, new covenant stuff. Leviticus verse, chapter 16, verse 14 says, and he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. <coughs> Excuse me. I've been getting over a little cold or something over the last week. That blood from the bull was sprinkled, and it was used to purify the people under the old covenant. However, in the new covenant, the much better covenant, Christ's blood was sprinkled to purify us. His blood did what bull and goat blood could not do. His blood cleansed our, our hearts clean and cleansed us from an evil conscience. His blood and his blood only, it was nothing that we did, it was all what he did. Again, the author is telling us to take confidence in that. It's like beating a dead horse, but that's, it's so important. Take confidence in his blood. <clears throat> and at the end of the verse, he brings up our bodies being washed with pure water. Now, this is in reference to baptism. You know, we here believe in believers' baptism. And when we come to faith, we get baptized, and then we are washed clean. And we are made new in Christ. Baptism is a beautiful sign of our allegiance, devotion, and love to Christ. It's beautiful. I remember when I got baptized, I got baptized here. I can't remember how long ago it was. I got baptized by Pastor Ken. And I just remember, I was bawling my eyes out when I was giving my testimony. And when Ken dunked me under, I just, and I come up and it was amazing. I felt reborn. It was there's something about believers' baptism that is amazing. And it's beautiful. So verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
you know, we might be wondering, what is our confession the author is speaking about? The author is telling us to hold fast to this confession. Well, that confession is that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he is the author of our salvation. That is our confession. And that's what he's telling us to hold fast to that. Matter of fact, Paul says this in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Folks, that is our confession. The confession of our hope. That Jesus Christ is Lord and that he is the one that saves and he's, saying, and he's also saying, hold on to us without wavering. Don't waver on the fact that Jesus is Lord. You don't want to waver on that. It's very important that you hold fast to that confession that Jesus is Lord. So hold on to that confession and that hope that God promised. God is, the, God is faithful. Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 7, verse 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. So God is the one who promised, and he is faithful. And this is just one verse, Deuteronomy, out of many that show his faithfulness on display. All throughout the Bible, his faithfulness is on display. So why wouldn't you want to hold fast to that confession and hope that our faithful God promised when he has been faithful all throughout his word? Everything he says is going to happen and has happened or will happen. And the author is saying, hold fast and trust God, the one who promised, the one who promised that his son is coming to die for our sins. Hold fast to that. So now we're going to be looking at the final two verses of, of this uh, sermon. And it says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The author is getting into our, what our job is as believers. He says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. <coughs> we are called to stir up one another. We are called to encourage one another. Yes, the entire book of Hebrews is a warning, but is also a book of encouragement. Again, this is probably the third or fourth time I've said it, the author was writing to persecuted Christians. They needed encouragement. And he's telling them that it's their job to stir each other up to love and good works. It's their job to be encouraging to each other in a time of persecution. It's the church's job to help the people persevere until the end. Folks, this is the perseverance of the saints. And we can't do it alone. We cannot persevere alone. 
I was reading a commentary by Al Mohler, and I, had, I wanted to throw this in there. I thought this was amazing about the church's role in this and the perseverance of the saints. He says, here he stresses Christian fellowship and the church's role in helping believers persevere unto the end. We cannot have confidence and full assurance of faith apart from the church. We cannot endure in isolation. Each Christian desperately needs the body of believers for encouragement. To obtain assurance, we need continual reminding from the other saints. I love that. And this is why we're so big on the local church and how important it is. Whether it's me, Anthony, or Steve up here, you are being reminded constantly about the local church and how important the gathering of the saints is. The gathering of believers and being a part of a church. A local church is so important to your walk with the Lord. You can do all the studying you want. You can read the Bible as much as you want. And I encourage you to do that. Don't hear me wrong here. I'm not, I'm not saying not to read the Bible. But unless you're a part of a church, unless you're a part of a body of believers, you are not going to grow spiritually. It's not going to happen. And I think the author's making that point very clear here. What else does the Bible say about the church? I'm just going to throw some verses out here that show the significance of the church because we do see it in the Bible. Romans 12, verses 4 and 5 says, For as in one body we have many members, we are all many members. And the members do not all have the same functions, speaking of spiritual gifts. So we, though many, are in one body of Christ and individually members one of another. Now, I know we've quoted that in other sermons. Paul is stressing the importance of the church, the importance of all of us. We are all one body in Christ. And we all have different spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verse 12 says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Paul again is showing us the importance of the body of Christ. This is the body of Christ. This is again in reference to spiritual gifts, yes, but the message is the same. The body of Christ, the church, is so important to your growth as a Christian. You will not grow without being a part of a church. It is so important. And that's one reason why the author of Hebrews goes on to say this in verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The author wouldn't have mentioned the fellowship of believers if it wasn't important. Fellowship of believers, what we do every Sunday here, and even other nights during the week with our missional communities, it isn't merely something that you don't have to do if you don't want to. It's a biblical command. We just saw it. It's a biblical command to meet with the body of believers and to be a part of one. I'm not talking about if you just miss one Sunday. Of course, we're all going to miss a Sunday here or there. We're sick, whatever. I'm talking about, he's, I'm talking about, and the author is talking about those who, who habitually neglect to meet with others when he says, as is the habit of some. Some people simply do not come to church 
and think that you don't need to go to church to be a Christian. I would argue that, yes, you do. And I think that's what the author is also saying as well. Now, I understand there's our people that can't come to church. They have physical disabilities or they're sick. They just can't make it. I'm not talking about those people at all. I'm speaking of those who willingly skip the gathering of the saints but call themselves Christians. Like I said earlier, you cannot grow in your faith if you're not actively a part of a church, a local church. You know, we live in America, and America has a very warped view on the church, and it trickles down to the congregation. Many people sit home and watch church online. And for some that, for the people that we I mentioned earlier, who can't make it and are sick or ill or physically disabled, that is a wonderful thing. But for those who can make it and choose not to, they need to understand that watching online is not a substitute for this. Not at all. You need to be a part of a local church to grow spiritually. You need to press into a local body of believers. You know, I think of my own walk, and there have been many times where I wake up Sunday mornings, and I do not want to leave my apartment. I just, like, I just want to check out and stay home. <clears throat> many times, and I'm sure many of us feel that have felt that way. Maybe some of you haven't, but <laughs> there are going to be times in the, in the future where we do feel that way. But let me tell you, after getting here and socializing with all of you people, with all of you saints, worshiping the Lord with Steve Lean worship, and hearing the word of God, I just feel refreshed and rejuvenated. You know, I work in a secular job. I need that fill me up every week to keep me going. So church, um, something like that wouldn't happen if I was at home in front of a computer. It's not going to happen. League in Your Ministries had a great article on a local church. And again, there's no author to it, apparently. <laughs> it says, The Bible everywhere assumes... <coughs> Excuse me. The Bible everywhere assumes that believers will be vitally connected to the church. The sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper powerfully reinforce the Christian's union and communion with Christ and fellow believers. <laughs> Not only is it God's purpose for us to mature under the shepherding care and faithful ministry of the church, but also build up one another in love. We need pastoral care and the soul nourishing means of grace. We also need each other. Make no mistake about it, church matters. He's making the case, the author of this is making the case that the author of Hebrews is also Neglecting to meet with the body of believers can seriously hinder your growth in Christ. Some of you might be thinking that's a little bit harsh when I say this. But it's the truth. I would say those who actively neglect the gathering of the saints but call themselves Christians might not truly be Christians. True Christian is going to want to be a part of a church. They're going to want to be here every Sunday. They're going to want to gather every Sunday with us. And if, you, if you're in here and you're not feeling that way, I would definitely, I would say, 
pray and take it to God. Go to the Lord. You know, I do know people from other churches that went to church and they stopped attending for various reasons, whatever they are. And some of their arguments were that you don't need to be a part of a church or attend church to be a Christian. And what happened? They fell away from the faith. They, they, they fell away. Remember that warning from Hebrews 6 that we preached on? The warning against apostasy? This is serious stuff. It is serious. If you're neglecting to gather with the saints, or feel that watching online is a valid substitute for the local church gathering, you might fall away. That might sound harsh, but it's the truth. You cannot grow spiritually without the church. So as we begin to wrap up, the author has a final statement at the end of verse 25. It says, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The author again is telling us that we need to be encouraging to each other and encouraging each other as we see the day drawing near. And as we see that day drawing near, we need to be even more encouraging. The author actually capitalizes the word day as it refers to the day of Christ's future return. Christ's second coming should move us to be encouraged and move us to encourage one another. Should encourage us to persevere until the end. His return is our blessed hope. Titus chapter 2 verse 13 says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. We are to be anxiously awaiting His return. Folks, be an encouragement to one another as the day draws near. You know, we live in an increasingly evil and hostile world. Of course, we don't know the day or the hour of his return, but we do know that each day is one day closer. So in this evil world, let's be an encouragement to one another. Encourage each other, reminding each other of blessed hope that one day he is going to return. So I do have a few things to say in closing. I, just, I do want to be an encouragement to you all. I just want to say just take confidence in the blood of Jesus Christ. We're going to take communion. I find this sermon fitting. It was a, a lot of it was about the blood of Christ. Take confidence in what he did on that cross. He did it for all of us. He bridged that gap so we can have access, full access to the Lord. Take confidence in that. Take confidence in that. Take confidence that He is our great, ultimate, high priest. Walk with the full assurance of your faith. Be confident that you are His. Hold fast to the hope that is in Jesus Christ. And as the day draws near, encourage one another and be anxiously awaiting His return. That doesn't mean check out. But that means sharing the Gospel with others and being an encouragement to, one here, to each other here. And again, and don't neglect the gathering. 
Continue to come to church and dig in to the body here. It is so important. It is, this gathering is, just, is so important. And again, remember that His return is our blessed hope. And always just look up and pray and be in the Word. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we just come before You today and just thank You for this gathering of the saints, Father. Father, we thank You for the, for the blood of Christ, the sacrifice on the cross, Father. We're just so blessed and thankful for that. Father, His blood bridged that gap between us and You. And we're, just, we're so blessed. And we don't deserve it, but Your mercy and Your grace and Your love for us covered that, Father. And Father, as we take communion today, we just ask that You bless that. And, and Father, we just ask that You bless everybody as we go out during, during this work week up, coming up, Father, and You just protect us and You just allow us to focus on You and You alone and allow us to be an encouragement to each other and share the gospel when we, when we have the opportunity, Father. And I just pray this all in Your Son's mighty name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in with us. We hope that you found this sermon edifying, encouraging, and challenging. To learn more about Vintage Faith Church, visit vintagefaithcicero.com. And of course, if you live in the area, we invite you to worship the Lord with us on Sunday mornings.